Well, good morning. morning. We're going to open to the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew this morning. Praise be to God, we got out of the 12th chapter. Feel a little bit like the Israelites coming into Canaan's land, you know. Last chapter, as we went through it extensively, we saw Christ redressing some of the issues with the Pharisees and laying out some key points about what service, what childhood, what familyhood, what being a part of God looks like. We talked about the parables. I mean, we talked about the examples that he gave of good trees and bad trees and good fruit and bad fruit. And we talked about last time what the family of God was. And that's something that carries forward slightly into chapter 13. We do have to remember, you know, that these chapters and these divisions did not exist. Um, Hebrew language doesn't even have really punctuation, okay? So it's not some of the things that we draw so heavy on. Remember, these are organizational things put in place by men who were men, and periods are not inspired, so... Um, We want to look more at the content of what's being discussed here. Now, obviously, as we have been kind of hitting at as we go through these teachings, we talk about Matthew and we've been staying in Matthew because Matthew was where we started with the fifth chapter starting on the parable. I mean, on the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about parables this morning. okay? so that's why parable keeps coming out of my mouth. All right. I mean, I've been studying, reflecting and thinking about parables and parables and parables all week. And so I, I can't obviously can't get the word out. But we have been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where we started, started his teaching about what the kingdom of God looked like, okay? What it was to be a part of the kingdom of God. What was the teachings of the kingdom of God? What was the preaching? What were the attributes? What were the characteristics that made up a person who was within the kingdom of God? All these things have been what Christ has been teaching on over the last 12 chapters. He's been teaching about what it looks like to be a Christian, okay, about a follower of Christ. And I don't use that word as a denominational word or as a religious word. I'm using it in what the true sense of the word should be, which is a Christ follower, okay? Now, we all have Instagram and Twitter and we have things like that, and you can follow people, okay, which means you're kind of scarily involved in their lives at a level that probably we would have otherwise said would have been harassment or um, otherwise something that would be nefarious, okay? Have you ever noticed that like before, if you did this much of information gathering on an individual who it was not expressly uh, given to you to do, that we would have called that stalking, okay? I just give it a few generations, just one generation back. Just give it 20 years ago. And if you had known all the pictures and everything that we flash up and show of everybody else, man, you would have called that a stalker and we'd been calling for restraining orders, okay? Now you can follow people, all right? You follow them. You follow their lives. You talk about them over dinner. You pop up pictures and Instagram feeds and things of people's every moment. Well, this is a much more intimate following that we are describing here, okay? We're not talking about following people just from a 30,000 foot level. This this Christian following is an intimate, family-oriented 
discipleship. And that's what Christ describes it as. He doesn't describe it as a as a religious gathering, and he doesn't describe it as a philosophy, and he doesn't describe it as a way of life that you just choose because you've weighed and balanced every other way of life and decided this is the one that meets all your needs. Instead, as he closes out chapter 12, he makes the point, For whosoever will do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. He integrates it into a family style discipleship. You're not just picking up a philosophy, you are entering a family. And we kind of fleshed that out last time. So carrying on into chapter 13, he swaps just a little bit, changes a little bit, but not really, okay? If we keep that kind of concept of family, all right? Family obviously is is the word delineative, okay? It delineates it would exclude, right? And Christ is even doing that. He says, there are some who are in the family and some who are not. Well, who's in my family? The ones who do the will of my Father. As we talked about in Luke and in Mark, it says, the ones who hear the word of God and do it. Okay, that's an important phrase to grab, especially as we go into these parables. Those who hear the word of God and do it. Not just those who hear the word of God. Okay? Not just those who have heard the word of God, but the ones who have heard the word of God and do it. Those are the ones that Christ says are doing the will of my father. And those who do the will of my father are in my family. They are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. Notice how he doesn't say they're my fathers. I think that's an interesting point too. There's only one father. In fact, he will talk about that in other places. He'll say, don't call any man rabbi. You only have one master. Don't call any man father. You only have one father. Now, that's not to get too legalistic and go, oh, I call daddy father. And oh, now, does that mean I'm breaking? No, but he is trying to make a point here that within the kingdom of God, within the family of God, there is one father figure, and that is God Almighty. Interesting thing that I read last night in a book by A.W. Tozer about the attributes of God, you know, we look at the word omnipotent, okay? We talk about the word omnipotent. That's omni-power. That means all power, all ability. Christ, God, they are omnipotent, okay? Which means they possess all power. They're the origin of all power. This is completely off subject, but they are the origin of all power. So we use that theological term of omnipotent or omnipotent, okay? The Anglo-Saxon word that we use to equate that is almighty have you ever noticed in scripture when you read the word almighty it's only ever ascribed to god all might all mightiness that's unique in god alone within the kingdom and the family of god there is only one father and that is god our father almighty so as he goes in here we carry on in chapter 13 and unfortunately well, I'm not going to say unfortunately. Fortunately and unfortunately, I'm going to read chapter 13 for us, okay? So I want everybody to open up your Bibles, read along with me. It's a long chapter, but we kind of got to get the, again, the 30,000-foot view before we start flying this plane down a little closer to the ground. So everybody open up your Bibles, read along with me. Chapter 13 of Matthew. It's important that you read this, that you see this. Because we're going to have to kind of break this up, okay, as we go through it. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it says, The same day, now this is the same day that he has just dressed down the Pharisees. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. 
And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places, where there they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprang up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell in good ground, and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of God, or heareth the word of the kingdom, and understands it not, then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and with joy receives it. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that hears the word of God and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he that receives seed in the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Another parable put, the, put he forth with them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence has these tares come? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Will you have us then go, and we can gather them up? But he said, No, lest while ye gather up the tares, you also root up the wheat with them. Let both of them grow up together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable he spake unto them. See why I said parable a lot this morning? The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. All these things spake unto the multi- Jesus unto the multitudes in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world." Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came unto him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto him, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and sell all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking good pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. Which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the the bad away. So shall it be in the end of this world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said unto them, have you understood all these things? And they said unto him, yes, Lord. And then he said unto them, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now everybody can take a breath. (sighs) Okay. Now, today we're really only going to probably have time to lay out some very big, broad overviews of this whole chapter that I do think are important because they frame it up, I think, a little bit better for us. So first off, what we see here is you've got a couple of different parables laid out. You've got the sower, you've got the weeds or the tares, you've got the mustard seed, the yeast... You've got the treasure, the pearl, and the net, and the householder. 
Okay, all of these telling different aspects of one meta narrative. That is what the kingdom of God is. Okay, what it looks like. Now, again, you do have to kind of you got to step back and you got to see why Christ was teaching this. And the reason is because if you zero in too heavily on in individual parables without seeing the whole big picture, okay, then you're going to come away with some very weird stuff. All right. You know, when you start talking about the parable of the yeast and you start trying to draw that out and you start trying to make that into something stand alone from everything else, you're going to have a weird parable going on there. Why all of a sudden yeast? Why all of a sudden this, you know, so it just, it doesn't make sense if you don't put it together as a whole. So I've kind of looked at it and I've put them together and there's times here you see Jesus explaining the parable to his disciples. All right. So there's some of those little interludes in between there. Now, if you go over to places like Mark chapter 4, where he reads this parable of the sower and the seed. If you go over to Luke chapter 8, you'll see the same thing. These are explained in almost similar ways in both areas. Now, the difference is, is Matthew kind of jumbles all of these parables together into one chapter. Whereas like Mark and Luke may spread some of these out, may not tell some of them. And he puts them in kind of different areas chronologically. I don't want anybody to get really freaked out about that, okay? Because it doesn't necessarily make any difference. It doesn't matter. Remember, when we're reading these stories, because there's times when people will get kind of wound up about, you know, well, it doesn't match perfectly. It's not the same chapter. It's not the same verse. It's, it, even Jesus, it's told in Luke that it's on a different day than in Matthew. Okay, remember something. These are inspired writings of God, but they are inspired through four different men. Okay? And God chose these four different men and inspired these four different men because they all four had different gifts, characteristics, backgrounds, history that God wanted woven into this. Okay, So that's why writings of Luke sound, look, and talk a little bit different than writings of Matthew. Because Matthew was one cat and Luke was another, okay? And God gave them different philosophies, different mindsets, different points of origin. Remember, Matthew was also called Levi and he was a tax collector. And he was hated of the Jews, all right? They despised him. Luke comes from a different position. Mark wasn't even among the original ones. You got different points of view in all these cases, so don't let that freak you out anymore. But what you do see, though, is that they are, a, it is, especially the parable of the sower and the seed is in every, well, I say every, is in all three of these synoptic gospels, okay? So it does cross over into Luke and in Mark, which, as we've said before, that makes it very important. If it was written once, it's plenty important in the Word of God. If it's written three times, it's for us to perk our ears up and to take notice that Jesus and again, not because that parable in specific was just something so profound that was going to blow everybody's mind, okay? But more so that it was important that Christ was teaching in all four, all three Gospels, He was teaching that this is what the kingdom of God looks like, okay? So I've organized them this way if you want to jot this down, because this is how I think they kind of actually flow together. Okay, they're separated, so they're not in order this way, but you do see some of them kind of jumbled together and it goes along with the thematic 
thing that they're trying to teach, okay? So when you look at like the parable of, if you're looking at the parables and you want to organize them, look at like the picture of the kingdom. That's what I've called the first subset of parables. The picture of the kingdom. This is going to be a snapshot into what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And that's going to include the parable of the sower and the seeds, the parable of the seed sower and the tares, the wheat and the tares, and the parable of the net. So that's verses 1 through 30 and 47 through 50. Those three go together, and we'll kind of talk about why in a minute when we break them out, but those three go together. Sower and the seeds, the wheat and the tares, and the net go together thematically. Okay. The next subset is a subset on growth. And the two that go together, there are ones that are right beside each other, the mustard seed and the yeast. They're parables teaching the growth pattern of the kingdom. Verses 31 through 33. And the last subset is one that I've called treasure. Okay, the treasure of the kingdom. Or treasuring the kingdom. And that is the parable of the treasure in the field and of the good pearl. And that's 44 through 46. So hopefully we got all those down. That's going to be the framework we're going to march out of as we go forward through this chapter. If we thought chapter 12 was dense... Chapter 13 is immensely denser, and I'm going to use that word. So let's start off with a snapshot, and I guess, yeah, that's a good place to start. Number one, I do want to kind of make a point. Christ has said he's teaching in this way for a reason. We got that, right? Parables, all right, if we, we, we do have to understand this, Christ did not parabolize his teachings here so that they were easier to understand for everyone who heard them. We catch that, right? Okay. He did not parabolize so that they were easier to understand for all that heard them. In fact, it's absolutely the opposite. He said, I'm speaking in parables for the point to not clearly explain for everyone that heard him. Do you remember that when we were reading through it? He said, because it is the the disciples ask him in verse 10, why do you speak in parables? Now, you have to kind of stop and ask the question, why did the disciples ask him that? Well, because it was out of character, right? We've gone through 12 chapters where Christ has freely just stopped set up camp. He's already once gotten out in a boat and taught before. He's done this before. And when he did, guess what? It was clear. It wasn't in parables. It was in clear teachings. Remember where we started this series over a year ago. We started at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I know there was concepts in there that we really did not want to grab hold of and accept, but it was clear. There was nothing in those chapters in 5, 6, 7. There was nothing in there that would go, hmm, love your enemy. That's a parable of what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm, what allegory are you trying to make there, Jesus? How can I make? No, he was very clear. In fact, he was so clear that he took the large theological principles and he zeroed them down with laser point perception. And he said, this is how it is. This is the perception, how you perceive love your enemy. It's not in some kind of vague way. It's actually this right here, the Good Samaritan. 
Oh, you mean you're talking about I got to love a Samaritan, a dirty, ugly Samaritan? Don't you know how filthy they are, Jesus? Yeah. And when I said love your enemy, you know, you've been going for thousands of years through this generation of learning the law. and It's been passed down and you have not done a very good job with it. But here's what it actually means to love your enemy. I mean, these are these that was clear. That was crystal clear. In fact, that's why it got him in so much trouble. Nobody was misunderstanding what he said. He goes through and he's picking some corn and he gets to some Pharisees. Man, he's going to tell them exactly how it is. No parables involved. No allegory. No trying to figure it out. He says, hey, you remember how David did this? Let me lay some on you. Let me teach you, brother, this morning. You remember how David ate of the showbread? Remember how he wasn't supposed to? I mean, Jesus was clear. So why the change? Why all of a sudden does Jesus have a changing of his teaching pattern? That he just decided, yep, you know what? I think chapter 12, we're going to transition. Chapter 13 is all parables from there. I've really come up with some really good ones. They're excellent teaching guides. They'll really hook the people. You know, anytime when you're doing a public speaking class or something, they'll tell you to start it off with a joke, right? Gets everybody interested. If you're going to talk about some like big, you know, like, especially some kind of scientific or any kind of big topic that people are really going to just go ahead and fall asleep before they ever get to the title of the message. They'll say, well, start it with a joke, relate it to yourself, start with a limerick, do something, draw people into your conversation. You notice how I hadn't done that this morning. Draw people into your conversation so they're interested, and then you lay the boring stuff on them, and hopefully they're there when you get it done with it, okay? Well, the same thing goes with parables. Sometimes people say, well, let me, let me see if I can't dumb this down for you. Let me see if I can't teach you this on a smaller level so you can get it. I'm going to talk about astrophysics and great big, you know, you know, theories and philosophies or whatever. But let me go ahead and just say, you know, this is the universe and it's like a glass and it's filled with water and you poke a hole in it and that's a black hole. You know, that's where we get this idea that somehow parables are a simplification of a complicated teaching. That is not what's going on here. Jesus did not said, I'm teaching these things in smaller words so you can understand them because I figured out in 12 chapters, people are having a hard time grasping what it means to follow me. So let me dumb it down for y'all a little bit. He didn't say that. In fact, when the disciples asked him about that, he said clearly, this is why I'm teaching in parables. You want to know why? Is it so that people can hear it and understand it better? No, instead Jesus says, because it is given to you, and that you there is not just these disciples, he is emphasizing the election, predestinarian sovereignty of God, that God chose a people, okay? And he's saying, I chose for you to understand these things. And he said, it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it is not given. And again, he's not talking about just his disciples in the sense of those who are going to become apostles and preachers. Okay? He didn't say, well, this is a special teaching for those who are going to teach in the future. And you need to have a little bit of more game knowledge so that when you go out there as my apostles, you'll know what you're doing. No, he said... To you, And he's speaking to his disciples and he's meaning that all of the family of God he's just mentioned about who hear 
and do the word of God, to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to them, which means those who do not hear, those who do not do the will of God, those who do not have ears of understanding or hearts of understanding, those people, it's not given to them to know the mysteries. And he said, so in this case, I'm, I'm speaking these things in parables. I'm talking to them in parables. You are going to understand it. They will not. You say, wow, man, Jesus just got really clickish really quick. I mean, he really just drew it back. And now all of a sudden we're not teaching these things because it wasn't given to them. These teachings right here were given to the children of God for them to have a deeper understanding of the mysteries as he describes it of the kingdom of God. Now, I say all that because there's an important delineation here. Jesus is teaching his disciples about a specific subject. Do we get that? He said, to you it is to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. He's teaching them about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. That is the subject, the context of what he's teaching. Notice how Jesus didn't teach all the time in parables. He stood up on a mountain and taught thousands of people about what practical righteousness and godliness looked like. So this is not some kind of exclusive, seclusive preaching technique or some kind of admonition or some kind of encouragement for us only to preach to baptize, believing, professing Christians and everybody else. It's not for them to know this stuff. That's not the case. This was given to his disciples to teach them a deeper understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom. But it was not a preaching style that was to be adopted across the board and that we are supposed to somehow delineate who is a Christian and who is not and we're only supposed to preach to Christians because what's it going to benefit the non-Christian anyway? That's not what Jesus is teaching here and he's not setting that up. In fact, do we remember over the last 12 chapters, he has sat in front of Pharisees that he has said, you are going to hell, okay? And said, you need to repent, you need to believe, you need to follow, you need to do... I mean, he, he's, he's preached to some people that he says, guys, you, you are not of my sheep. You are of your father, the devil. But he preached to them. So the idea that we are only to preach to Christians or people who look like they're born again or people who, that's, that's never in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible is that. We preach the word of God indiscriminately everywhere, okay? Unless we are expressly forbidden of the Holy Spirit, we preach everywhere to everyone repeatedly. I mean, you look at the testimony of the nation of Israel. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet and said, if you don't, let's back it up. Let's start out this way. He said, you are going into captivity. You have transgressed. You are an abomination. You have done everything I told you not to do. You are going to be destroyed. But if you will repent and humble yourself before the face of God, I will forgive you and prevent these things. Well, did they do it? No. Did he know they were going to not do it? Yes. Did he still send prophets? Absolutely. To preach to a bunch of people that he said, you are hard-hearted, wicked, evil, always erring your heart, and I'm still going to send you one more prophet until the time comes. 
And then there's going to come a time I'm going to shut the door and y'all are out of here. But here's the thing. I'm still sending my prophets to preach to you. So this is not an exclusive preaching style that somehow we're supposed to only preach to a certain group of people. So don't take that away from this chapter. But what you do need to take away is exactly what Christ said. I'm teaching you in this way because I want you to understand something deeper about the kingdom of God that I'm not, in, I'm not interested in others knowing about. And that goes for all of us. So let me just ask you this. If that's the tagline that Jesus says about these parables, how do you now interpret them and look at them? Do we go back to, oh, just some cutesy sayings? I mean, about yeast and some leaven and man, what a cute little thing about growth. Isn't that cute? Look at that mustard seed. Let's all do a, let's do a sermon on the mustard seed. And let's talk about how small it is. And let's talk about how big it gets. And let's talk about, I mean, let's just talk about, let's just go through. And in these just some cute teachings. Jesus says, guys, I'm about to lay some bombs on you. Some bombs of mysteries of the kingdom that have not been expressed since the world began. Chapter 13 is like a dot on the timeline. Chapter 13 isn't just another chapter. It's a timeline where Christ says, here is some stuff that I have not talked about in all the thousands of years of existence to this point. Now that's got you interested, right? Should. Should have us really interested. There's something in this. There's something in this that God had not revealed to humans until this point. That should make us go, wow. Then what's in these parables? What is this teaching me? Well, we're going to look at that. So first off, you see the first thing that we kind of delineated here was, and that may be my catchphrase for the day, who knows, but this is what he set aside, he set apart, he enumerated. You know, let's come up with some more, some more words to use. The picture of the kingdom. Okay, the picture of the kingdom. If you remember, we said this included the sower and the seed, it included the wheat and the tares, and it included the net parables. And the good thing is, is that with the sower and the seed and with the wheat and the tares, he has to give some supplementary teaching, some supplementary explanations. It's good for us because it helps us know pretty clearly what he said. Okay. With the net, it had its explanation within it. Okay. And that's why he didn't do supplementary teaching on that. But this on this snapshot of the kingdom... I want us to just lay out in the beginning some characteristics that are explained here in these parables of what the kingdom of God is. Now, Matthew used kingdom of heaven a lot. Other writings use kingdom of God a lot. Again, don't let that throw you. But let us remember something that I think maybe two or three years ago we discussed about the principle of the kingdom of heaven. It is, and I put this, and as I read through this and go through this over and over again, I keep coming back to the same conclusion. 99% of the time, and you know how when you do that, okay, all you got to do is flip around any kind of bottle of Lysol and it will kill 99.9% .9 of bacteria. You say, well, what's that really awful 0.1% that's going to kill us all because Lysol can't kill it? 
You know, they put that on there because if they said 100% and then you sn- then that's a lawsuit, okay? I don't mind about this lawsuit. 99% of the time, the kingdom of God reference is always referencing something here. It's not talking about heaven. It's not talking about the eternal destination of the children of God, Okay? And the reason I make that statement is because when we hear kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God, we immediately kind of go to that place. Okay. But look at these parables. All of these describe worldly occasions. It's describing a present day world scenario, not something that we are going to get to in the future. And I know before, and that's why I'm not, I didn't bring this up, but if you want to, we'll discuss it later. There's only like one or two actual phrases, kingdom of God, that I can say, yeah, those might be heaven. That's why I say 1%. 99%, it is always referencing here. Always, 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 always referencing here. Okay? So when you're thinking about that, these are some of the characteristics that it's made up of. And this is why it's important, okay? This is why it's important to delineate that. Because there's going to be something that's mentioned here in this kingdom of God that most certainly will not be in any kind of eternal heavenly kingdom of God, okay? Starting off, it is made up of those who are children of God and those who are not. Did we catch that? This kingdom of God here is described as being made up of those of the children of God. And there are times when those that are not can inhabit it as well. Now that gets a little tricky because there are some phrases that say you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. There are phrases where it says you cannot be only, you know, if you are not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So it gives you this spiritual, well, how could a non-elect, non-child of God then be in the kingdom? We're going to have to talk about that. But Christ says in the parable of the wheat and tares, the whole kingdom of God is the world. And within that kingdom, you had the good, the good wheat, the children of God. And within that kingdom, the devil came and sowed his tares amongst it. And he says, leave them alone till the end. They'll be sorted out in the end. That was within the kingdom of God. That wasn't within the world as a whole. That was within the kingdom of God. He said, and in that phrase, he said, as we're going to get to, it encompasses the whole world. You know, sometimes we get the picture of the kingdom of God and we try to really narrow that bad boy down. And we go, oh, that is the local church body, and it's made up of semi-autonomous groups around the world, but it's a local church body that is specific, narrow, in a box. It's got a postage address, you know, it's got that kind of thing. Christ, when he looks at the parable of the wheat and the tares, he even explains it himself. He says, the world is the kingdom of God. And you know, if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm talking about the physical world, not the metaphysical philosophy of the world, okay? The world, quote unquote. But it makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you this. Whose world is this? Is it God's or is it man's? Did we create the world? Did we make it into existence? Are we the ones that uphold it by the power of our word? No, right? We're in agreement on that? No. It's not our world. What's the song we sing? This is my 
Father's world. The whole world in his hands, okay? Brown and yellow, black and white, we're all perfect in sight. That's The whole world is in his hands, okay? I know those are two separate songs. Don't even start, Mom. It's, the world is God's, okay? God owns it. He owns the universe. He is the almighty sovereign of it all, okay? So we can, cry, we can kind of delineate some ways and say, oh, well, this world is, you know, it's ruled by the power of the prince of the air, which God does allow that. The prince of this world, the God of this world, as it's described, speaking to Satan and his power that he has been allowed to have here, okay? It's still God's. Who in the end is wrapping this bad boy up? God. Well, how can you wrap up something you don't own and have control over? You can't. It's his world. So it makes sense then when we're talking about the kingdom of God being in this entire world. Well, that makes sense because if it's God's world, then God's kingdom technically applies to the whole world. The kingdom of God is God's dominion over X, Y, or Z. Well, he has dominion over the whole world. So the whole world is his kingdom. Now... I was trying to think of a good way to kind of explain this, I guess, to kind of help maybe space out for us the difference between being in the kingdom of God, as he phrases it, and those who are not in the kingdom of God, when the whole world is the kingdom of God, okay? And this is kind of how I thought about it. Y'all can take it or leave it. It may be an awful example. I was thinking about it last night right before I went to bed. And as y'all know, our situation going to bed has been a little bit challenging, so my neurons are slightly frayed. But think about this, because there's a lot of kingdom teaching that goes on in the presence of the Roman Empire that's occupying them right now, okay? Right? Where did the church start? Jerusalem. That should have been a pretty easy answer, okay? Let me try it again. Where did the church start? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. At this point in time, 30 AD, 33 AD, who was in control of Jerusalem? Rome, right? We all know this. Where did Pontius Pilate come up? That wasn't just a cool guy with a weird name. He's a Roman official. Why was he there? Because they own it. Okay. Now, there were some classifications within the Roman Empire. All right. Obviously... Jerusalem, the Jews, everybody here is inhabiting a place that is technically marked on the map as Roman Empire. But not everybody in that place was a Roman citizen. Okay? Paul was unique in that you'll find in his history, he grew up where he grew up in Tarsus. It was a Roman province. And when he was born, he actually became a Roman citizen. And that's why Paul goes to Rome when he gets arrested. You remember that whole story we went through with Acts. What? Nobody else went to Rome, okay? Peter wasn't going, yeah, take me to the emperor. Let me plead my case. Why? Because he's not a Roman citizen. He doesn't get that opportunity. The only people who could appeal to the throne for leniency were citizens. And that's why Paul said, I will take my case to the emperor. No one else in their right mind would make that statement. You don't get some Joe Blow off the street of Tarsus going, hey, yeah, let me go on up to the emperor and let's ch- let me chat with him. I know. I, no, it doesn't happen like that. That's how you get killed. OK, Paul had the ability 
to even make that statement because as he tells the people that arrested him, hey, you know we're Roman citizens and you're not supposed to imprison us without the authority of the emperor. And they said, oh, no, we got to get him out of here. You know, he's a Roman citizen. We've, we've broken the law. And he said, no, that's okay. That's okay. I'll just go talk to the emperor about it. That's why that happened. Now, given that scenario, there are those in the Roman kingdom who were citizens of Rome and enjoyed the benefits of being a citizen of Rome. And then there were those who hung out in the Roman kingdom who had no benefits, no involvement. They would say, yes, geographically, I'm in a Roman territory, but I'm not in the kingdom in that way. Okay, does that make some sort of sense? When he talks about wheat and tares growing up within the kingdom, there are those who are the wheat who God has called and blessed and chosen and predestinated, etc., who are children of God who will be given ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to understand and all these things. And they will enjoy the benefits, the blessings of being in the kingdom of God. And then there's the tares that grow up beside them who will grow up in technically the same geographic location under the same dominion of God, but will have no involvement in the kingdom. Okay? So that's how you can have the two coexist in the same space. Okay? Here's the other thing, though. And an important point to grab from this, and like I said, this is going to be an overview. We're not even really going to get into it. An important point to grasp from this as we're laying this framework out. When we go through things like the parable of the sower and the tares, or we go through things like the sower and the seed, and we talk about those examples, in particular with the wheat and the tares, let me just ask you this. You don't see anywhere in there where man was involved in an active way, right? You don't see man saying anything about his status as wheat or the tares saying anything about their status as tares. This is a high, high altitude view of God and angels looking down on what's going on within God's kingdom, talking about the tares. Even the angels were saying, hey, God, do you want us to go get those tares out of there? And what was God's response? No, because you don't know if you're going to gather up the tares with the wheat at the same time and you're going to throw, basically, you're going to throw some wheat away. All right. Now, you know, there's some things about that that I'm, I'm sure were just kind of, I'm not going to say they were allegorical, but I'm going to say maybe he was just kind of giving a scenario because I would hate to think that angels were so careless. I mean, if angels are that careless, how bad are we? You know what I'm saying? Okay. If God was was <laughs> creating angels and they couldn't even pick out tares from the wheat without getting... Okay, so you get where it's kind of a... It's a scenario given. God was not saying, oh yeah, we could do this, but uh, you know what would happen if we just accidentally goofed up and we cut down a wheat with it? I don't think God is that imprecise. Okay, But he is testifying to what is his final end game. Is that don't worry about it right now. Yes, it is going on. But I'm going to deal with it. There's coming a day. We sing that song. There is coming a day when I'm going to send my angels. They're going to take everybody out. We're going to bundle them together. Separate them left and right. One group gets to go into the kingdom. And as it says, shine forth in the glory of the Father. And he says, how does that happen when the wicked ones and the ones who cause iniquity are taken away from us? 
this also is an interesting picture and something that we really don't have probably time or depth to get into. But, you know, we talk about a new heaven and a new earth. And sometimes we think we're just all going to heaven and all this stuff's going away. But the way that God describes it here in particular about the kingdom, the kingdom goes on. The kingdom exists in perpetuity. In fact, Christ will say that he's going to take the church up with him. And the, and the emblem of continuation of this kind of worldly institution. So the kingdom of God is going to continue. He doesn't say, in the end, I'm going to wipe the kingdom out and then take the ones to glory with me. He says, no, actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the tares out of my kingdom. And then the wheat can enjoy my kingdom in their fullness, in their glory, in their brightness with no other problems. That's the picture you see in Revelations 21 and 22 when he speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. Where he will say that in this new heaven and in this new earth, there's no more tears because God's wiped them all away. There's no more light. There's no more sun for light because Jesus is the light. There's no more need for water because Jesus is the fountain uh, spraying forth and giving eternal. I mean, all this stuff gives this picture of this beautiful place we're going to inhabit that's not necessarily heaven as we think of it. It's this new heaven and this new earth. So this kingdom mentality carries forward. It has big weight. There's some deep stuff in there. I know people are going, oh, what are you talking about? We can chat, we can chat about it later. I'm not holding anything. I'm not 99% on any of that stuff. But these are things that you kind of see Christ saying, I'm going to come back and at one day I'm going to solve the problem that is in my kingdom. So you see that there is those that are replaced there by the devil. And again, that has to be here on this earth. If we're talking about an eternal heavenly home kingdom of God. And somehow devil is like sowing children of himself in there. That would be really weird, wouldn't it? Now you see why it makes more sense that this is a timely place here in this earth. And not something that's talking about the kingdom of heaven above. Also, there are those among the hearers of the word of the kingdom that don't have the hearts to hear and understand. He's going to explain this. There are those tares that exist within the kingdom. The kingdom is where the word's being preached and their hearts are not in the condition to receive it. Why? Because the one who does the heart is God. The one who changes the heart is God. That's Ezekiel. That is, I will give them a new heart. I will change the old heart and stony heart and give them a new heart. Proverbs will say that like this, and it's not necessarily directly related, but it does make a point. The seeing eye and the hearing ear, both of these the Lord has created. Now he's talking physically in that sense, but it can be taken spiritually as well. Not by the will of man, not by the will of flesh, but by the power of God. The kingdom is an exponential growth kingdom. Okay. It can begin as a little thing but grows to encompass much. This gives the picture that this kingdom is not confined. Okay. We want to put it as the local church context. And if we do so, then what we're saying is the kingdom is about 40 or 50 people maybe on a Sunday morning. That's not the kingdom. Okay. It's part of the kingdom. It's not the entirety of the kingdom. Okay? It also goes to this. The kingdom is not bound to a denomination. Please give me an amen on that. Why is that important? 
That's not slandering a denomination. That's slandering the idea that you're going to put God in a denomination when God didn't create denominations. And if you're going to draw it down like that, we might as well say the kingdom of God, if, if Christ was teaching this, it would go something like this. The kingdom of God is in white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America. Okay? But he doesn't. Thanks be to God. He doesn't. And you say, well, why does that sound so familiar? Because we have said through generations that we believe that God has a people of who? Every kindred, every nation, every tongue, every tribe on the face of the earth. And just like Brother Allen was talking about this morning, that means that even Kim Jong-un could be a child of God... He's obviously not there yet, but he could be a child of God. And so that's why when we're talking about people being a part of the kingdom, we're not just talking about people who look to look the same, okay? Let's be real honest. Jesus was not white, okay? We all need to embrace that and amen that, okay? He was not white. He was not a Western European, okay? We are outsiders, okay? We are the anomaly, we're the ones that are described as being the ones who were outside and brought in, not the ones who have always been in. Okay? Even though we feel like that because of our history, we're not. We're latecomers to this game. But we do understand that it's an exponential growth kingdom, which means it's going to inhabit spaces around the world that we could never fathom. And it's going to grow to levels and encompass people who we would probably, if we were being honest with ourselves, never let in to the country club. But the kingdom of God grows out like that mustard seed is described. Or like that leaven, that yeast in that bread. It grows and it grows and it grows. And if you left a lump of yeast in, or le- left a lump of batter with yeast in it on the table, you would come back from a small bowl and it would have encompassed the entire bowl and gone out over the sides. And it had been like that 1950s movie, The Blob. It just kind of sucks things in and just keeps on going. And again, I think pretty much in this population, I can say that and we get it. Brody's out there going, what's the blob? If you look at it, it grows out and encompasses. It's going to grow out and involve people that we don't anticipate being there. In fact, that phraseology he uses there with the mustard seed about the plant, and we're going to close up, I promise, with the plant growing out. That actually is a reference back to an Ezekiel prophecy that is speaking about the Gentiles coming into the kingdom. So when he's using this phrase here about the mustard seed and the plant, he's not coming out of the blue with that going, oh yeah, you know, well, that sounds a pretty picture. Sounds good. No, he's taking Ezekiel and he's going, hey, you know what was prophesied by Ezekiel? Boom, here it is. The kingdom of God is going to involve the Gentiles. And it's not just going to involve them like, hey, guys, if you want to join up, you can. Or, you know, if we're in the right scenario or if we get the right country club mentality established, sure. No, he says the kingdom of God is going to expand in so many directions. It's going to be made up, as it describes, of all these different birds. And all those different birds are representing all the different cultures, all the different races, all the different nationalities. 
And he's saying that's what the kingdom of God is going to do. It's going to start in this tiny little group in Jerusalem in AD 30. And it's going to end up in 2018 in a small little area in Jasper, Alabama. And it's going to involve some people who the first group is going to go, how in the world did we let them in? How did they get here? Because the powerful work of the kingdom of God. Because in Christ's death on the cross, he died for us all. Which then throws the onus back on us. If this kingdom is made up, if Christ says this kingdom is made up of a bunch of people who don't look the same. Notice he didn't say it's made up of a tree that has all of the sparrows in it or all of the black birds or all of the yellow birds or all of the red birds. No, he says it's a tree that's got all these different kinds of birds and they're all cohabitating in this same space. Christ's death on the cross saved us from racism. Do we understand that? And the earliest pictures of the kingdom express that. And lastly, that the kingdom is a treasure to those who know it, hear it, and understand it. You look at those parables where he talks about the man who buys the field or the man who gets the goodly pearl. You look at that and it says what? That the man, when he found the treasure in the field, because of what? Why did he go and sell all that he had and buy that field? What did it say? Because of the joy that he had, he sold all that he had and he bought the field. The joy. Say, well, what is it that we, why are we buying into this kingdom? Why are we, why are we investing time and energy into this kingdom? Why are we doing all this? Because of the joy that is found in the kingdom. It is a treasure. It is a thing of great price. It's something that we look at not as an onerous, you know, organization that's putting all these harsh things on us. No, it's a joyful thing. It's a treasure. So we should view it that way. Just as it says, Christ endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. It's a thing that he saw and purchased with his blood. So I hope these things have been beneficial. Like I said, I know we have not dove, dived in even on the surface. I mean, we're like one of those really flat rocks. We've just been skipping off of it all morning, okay? Um, but we're going to get in it, I promise, okay? And when we do, we'll chat. But right now, we just needed to kind of lay that framework out so we knew where we are going forward. I mean, God bless us to continue these things. And that hopefully as we get into this further, we'll continue to see the beauties of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. May God bless us to do so.